0: Father God, we thank you for this incredible relationship that you've established with us. Help us now as we look into your word, help me now as I speak on your scripture to be close to your Holy Spirit, that we would draw near, that we would be uh, transformed as we've prayed a few times already today by what you reveal. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us, your mercy, this incredible privilege that we have of being drawn close to you through your son, Jesus. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are twin brothers. Picture twin brothers. One brother is a good citizen. He's very kind. He's very patient. He's very generous the other brother is foolish and he took advantage of the patience of his brother and the generosity of his his twin brother but more than just foolish the other twin brother is often sometimes out of control and it would lead to violence and one night this other brother is out drinking and he's out partying with his friends he's at a bar and an argument starts and Somehow in the argument with the alcohol and everything else that's going on, he pulls out a knife, and the end of the argument is a man is stabbed to death. So he comes home covered in blood, pulls off his clothes, throws them on the floor, collapses unconscious from the night out, drunk. The other brother wakes up in the morning. And he sees the clothing of his twin. And he knows exactly what happened. So he takes off his clothes. He puts on the bloody clothes. He goes down to the police station, turns himself in, explains what happened. A few hours later, the other brother wakes up from his drunken stupor, goes out, looks for his clothes, can't find them looks for his brother, can't find his brother. He figures out what's happened. Runs down to the police station. Runs into the bailiff. Says, my brother, he's turned himself in, he's done this thing, it wasn't him. The bailiff says, no, justice has already been done. Your brother's been sentenced, and he's been executed for his crime. There's nothing you can do about it now. All you can do is live the life Worthy of what your brother did. That's a a parable or a story that is sometimes told to get across to people a picture, obviously, of what Christ has done. And it raises a question in our series on Easter. This is our last sermon Uh, on this sixth sermon series on Easter, and we've been looking through the Scripture at what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And we looked at uh, His glorifying of the Father, His demonstration of God's perfect justice, His demonstration of the perfect love, and the perfect faithfulness of God. He cast out Satan to draw all people to Himself, to become the Gospel, to become the good news that we share to leave us the holy spirit as a helper on earth and then to become our advocate in heaven you remember from last week all these things that christ did on the cross and the, and the purpose of the series is that by taking an extended look at the cross and a more complete look at what christ has done and accomplished there then what what our hope is is that we plant the cross more firmly at the center of our faith and at the center of our hearts and at the center of our relationship with god so that the cross is our source of joy and it's our source of assurance and it's our source of glory in God for all that he's revealed in the cross. And, and we realize as we take this extended look at the cross that we need the cross the same way the earth needs the sun. The cross for us as Christians uh, is the gravity that pulls us around, that we gravitate around the cross and that we never leave it, that the weight of the cross should keep us in the orbit of the cross all the time and that Christ what he accomplished on the Christ on the cross illuminates everything that we do and that every day just like the sun we should be thankful that we're illuminated by its glory and so that's that's the purpose of the series and that's the purpose of what we're doing and and what we're doing right now and today in this last series is what I want to look at is this one image or one dimension that we that that sort of Speaks to what we're going to partake of in communion afterwards, and it is the blood that was shed by Christ. Right? The fact that all of this was done through the bruising and the brokenness and the blood of Christ. That it, it pleased the Father to bruise the Son, it says in Isaiah. And can we accept that? And how can it be that there is an aspect of pleasure in in the setting of the cross before His own Son in the Father, and that through the bruising of the Son that we are redeemed, and that in Jesus Christ the whole, the whole purpose of the cross was to establish a new covenant between us and God in the blood of Christ. And that's what we're looking at. Why is it so bloody? What, like, why did it have to be done this way? Why does it have to be through blood? Why does it have to be through violence? It's easy to recoil from that. It's easy to step back and say, like, why so gruesome? <laughs> right? Like, why the cross? Why blood? Why is this? And, and as Christians, sometimes we just take it for granted, but it's weird for people to wonder why God has to work this way. And so when we're examining the cross, what we have to remember is that, that Christ established the new covenant in His blood Not through any other means, but by death, and by bleeding, and by shedding blood. There's three things that I want to look at. Why this way? Why is it so bloody? And what does it mean for our joy? So to to answer the question of why through shed blood, we have to sort of step back and bear with me for about five minutes as we we step back and we have to sort of go through the history of God interacting with mankind. We have to take a look at an overview of the covenant relationship that God has with man. And from Adam and Eve all the way up to the cross and then beyond. And so from the very beginning, if you look in, in Genesis with Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, Two things took over took took place there in terms of the covenant. Is The first thing is that God provided animal skins to cover their sin. And in this picture of the animal skins that he used to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, there is this imputation or expectation that blood was shed in order to cover the shame of what Adam and Eve had done. And then to go on to further explain in Genesis 3, God explains in his promise with Adam and Eve as to what happened because of the sin and how this relationship is going to change going forward. He says to them, he essentially makes a promise to Adam and Eve about how the relationship is going to go and that there needs to be a seed of Eve that is bruised in order to crush Satan. In Genesis three fourteen and 15, God is explaining this to him. Essentially, it's a promise or a covenant that this is now how the relationship stands. It says, the Lord said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So in other words, people aren't going to like snakes. I mean, you can read it that way if you like. But not just that, he goes on, he says, he, singular, he, the offspring, singular, he shall bruise or attack the head of Satan, your head, and you shall bruise or attack his heel. And so God says, in our relationship now, this is how it's going to happen. This is what's known as the proto-evangelion, which is a fancy word for the beginning of the Gospel. That from the very beginning, God spelled this out. Eve, you are going to have a son. You're going to have a seed. You're going to have an offspring. And he is going to crush the head of Satan just as Satan bruises his heel. Attacks him. Jesus is going to deal a blow to the head of Satan, and Satan is going to deal a blow to Jesus. And so God makes this promise, a covenant with Adam and Eve, that here's how it's going to go from now on. Blood had to be shed to cover your shame, and there's more blood to come in order to fix this problem. And it's sealed in blood, and it promises more blood. And then secondly, as you keep going forward, you see that God begins to act out his covenant and he fills in more detail to establish this people, this seed that is going to eventually arise and you get to Abraham. And God chooses Abraham and he establishes a covenant with Abraham and the, how Jesus is going to come through the line of Abraham, through Israel, his chosen people. And if you look in Genesis 22, as this covenant is being ratified, as this covenant is being established by God, he sends Abraham up into the mountain, you'll remember, with his son Isaac. Isaac goes up with Abraham his father and they have no offering to give and they're going to go sacrifice to God and they go up onto the mountain and God provides a ram. Abraham lifts his eyes and he says behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so here establishing the covenant further, shed blood. God says I'm going to establish a covenant with you But there is blood to ratify this covenant. There is blood to seal this covenant. And the covenant, if you just keep reading, he explains it. That the Lord declares it. Because of this covenant, you and your offspring and all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. And then you keep going, and God provides a way of escape for Israel by the blood of the Passover in Egypt. And you remember this, that Israel, is in, 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 they are enslaved by Egypt, and they're trapped, and they need to be saved, and God says to them that you're going to take a lamb, and that lamb shall be without blemish, and you're going to take that, that lamb either from sheep or goats, and you'll keep it, And then you will kill the lamb and you'll take the blood and you'll put it over the lintel of your door. And when I come through, I'll see that blood and I'll remember my covenant. Because that blood is the seal of my promise to you. And so God continues to reinforce and establish the presence and the purpose of blood in the covenant. And there's other places I could go. I'm going to keep going. There's others I've missed, but it goes over and over and over again. And then as Israel escapes, God establishes a new covenant. The law gives the law at Mount Sinai by blood again. And so in Exodus, Moses comes and tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and he rose in the morning and he built an altar and he took the blood of oxen and he put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar and then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said we will do all that the Lord has spoken and he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and again the covenant was ratified and sealed in blood. And then God provides within that covenant a sacrificial system to protect the people that are under the Sinai covenant or the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy covenant. And he explains the blood in terms of life. And you know all the things that go into the ritual of atonement for the people of Israel in the keeping of this covenant with God. And you can go into Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Exodus and see all of these things. It says, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. And so the high priest is killing a goat for a sin offering. He brings that blood through the veil of the temple. He comes into the holy place and into the holy of holies and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And it says, thus he shall make atonement in the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people and of Israel because of their transgressions and their sins, and so he shall do it for the tent of meeting which dwells in the midst of their uncleanness. This is the tabernacle, or the the, the the temple, before the temple was built, the tabernacle that symbolizes the temple. And the high priest had to do this year after year after year to atone for the people of Israel and keep covenant with God. And then as you move forward, you keep moving forward, and finally in Jeremiah as the prophets begin to show up, God promises a new covenant in Jeremiah. You can read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It's easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. That's where God sort of first clearly unveils the new covenant that is coming. And so the prophets start to speak about this new covenant. And it's going to be a covenant that it's not like the old covenant. It's not like the old Sinai covenant. It's not like the old Abrahamic covenant. They keep breaking that covenant. It keeps needing the slaughter of animals day after day, week after week, year after year. I have a new covenant with the law written on their hearts and I'm going to forgive them and I won't remember their sin anymore, he says in Jeremiah. But that new covenant is also going to need to be established in blood. And the prophets at that point begin to teach Israel of a Messiah that is coming even though the prophets didn't understand what they were teaching. They keep talking about a servant who must suffer. They talk about a Messiah who must be slain. And the, the prophets... They have this prophecy of this new covenant that is coming and they have this prophecy of a Messiah, but they don't totally understand it because the Messiah has to suffer. The Messiah has to be slain because this new covenant has to be sealed in blood as well. And Isaiah 53 talks about that. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for a guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Blood is still required to establish this new covenant. And then finally we come to Christ and the cross and what we've been preaching on and learning about for these these five, six sermons. That Christ fulfills that obligation. That He is the suffering servant. That He is the Lamb who is slain. That He is the Messiah who must die. And you remember that at the crucifixion of Christ, that crucifixion came at the Feast of Passover where for 1,500 years Israel had been remembering their salvation from Egypt and remembering the atonement that they must make Through the slaughtering of lambs. And so at that point in history, as Jesus is there in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, literally hundreds of thousands of lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. And it's at this Passover and the blood of all those animals is being spilled in the temple. Rivers and rivers of blood to atone for the sins of the nation. And Christ is taken outside of the camp, outside of Jerusalem, to die on His own cross, His own sacrifice, to shed His blood for the sins of the whole world once and for all. The covenant has to be ratified in blood. It has to be sealed in blood. And there's many, many verses that could explain this and what Christ accomplished for us. But I'll just touch on Hebrews 9 and I would encourage you to go and read through Hebrews 9. We don't have time this morning for it. But if you read through Hebrews 8 and 9, the writer of Hebrews paints such a perfect picture of what is going on with Christ and His sacrifice and why the shedding of blood was necessary. He says in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, after getting done talking about all the failure of the Old Covenant, how you know we slaughtered all these lambs and we slaughtered all these bulls, and it was temporary, it could never take away our, our sin. He says, but when Christ appeared as the high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And so in Hebrews 2.17, he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation or to make substitute for the sins of the people. That's an important verse. Jesus is the brother that was slain for our sin. Because we're foolish at best. And the reality is our foolishness often leads to much worse than foolishness. To willful cruelty, violence, and selfishness. So that's establishing that God operates through blood. (laughs) Why is it so bloody? Well, first of all, this is how God has established his relationship for us. That he said that if there is going to be a reconciliation of this relationship, it's going to be sealed and ratified through innocence, through blood, through life. Life has to be given for life. But why so bloody? R.C. Sproul tells a story of how he was preaching on this. He's actually invited to preach to some Quakers And he was preaching on the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament along the lines of what I was just preaching there. How the Old Testament was established in the blood of animals and how the New Testament must be established, the New Covenant must be established in the blood of Christ. And somebody in the back jumped up and said, that's primitive and obscene. And R.C. says, yeah, it is. I love the fact that you chose those words. It is primitive and obscene. That Christ would have to die on the cross for us. Why is the cross so bloody? Why is it so primitive and so obscene? It's primitive because it's simple and it's primal. It is easy for us to understand. God is painting in really simple pictures what is going on with our relationship with Him and how sin breaks that relationship. And He's told us a story in a way that nobody misses the meaning of. It is primitive. Because we are not that bright. And so God tells the story in a very primitive way because it reaches to the most primitive of our problems. Our sin and our brokenness from our relationship with Him. And it is obscene. It's obscene that this should have to happen. It's obscene that a cross should be necessary. It's obscene for, I think, three purposes that have the most direct meaning for us. First, simply... The fact that I talked about that to rati- the blood had to be shed to ratify the covenant in the manner that God had established. That God's covenants with mankind... Blood has to be required to seal these covenants, to to literally fulfill the requirements of the law. Life is in exchange for death. And the blood is life. In Leviticus 17.11, he spells it out. Moses spells it out for us. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. That's why it's bloody. That's why Christ had to bleed and die. And the writer of Hebrews goes into much more explanation of that, which I don't have time for. So that's the first thing, is that just to fulfill the law, it had to be done through blood. But secondly, that, and that first one is the objective sort of external reality of what God did for us through Christ on the cross. But secondly, I think it needs to be blood, I think it needs to be death, I think it needs to be obscene to assure us that no matter how obscene the sin of this world is, Christ has endured a sacrifice equal to the obscenity of our sin. If we think about those Nigerian schoolgirls who have been abducted, if we think about the horrors of warfare and child soldiers, if we think about genocide, if we think closer to home, we think about that boy in London who was locked in a room for two years. Ridiculous or abortions and abuses and beatings and abandonments. Our sin is obscene. And God has provided a payment for sin that is equally and surpassingly obscene. The obscenity of the cross is to equal and surpass the obscenity of sin because His Son has endured something far more horrific and far more obscene than our sins in the shedding of His righteous blood for our sake. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so this second purpose is to assure us that no matter how horrible our sins are, the sacrifice for our sins was far more horrible. And it's up to the task of forgiving us of atoning for us. And then thirdly, the other end of the scale, thirdly, I think it is so obscene and so horrific that it has to be through the death and bleeding and blood of Christ, is that there would be no mistaking sin as something inconsequential. There is no pretending that our sin is something that we can just laugh off and figure, oh, it's no big deal. You know, I'm a nice person and God must like nice people. That God somehow owes us entrance into His presence how could God dare to turn us away after we've been such nice people? We're not good. Our sin is not a behavioral problem primarily. It's not about not swearing and not smoking and being a nice person and saying, tipping the waitress well. You know, or even just not getting drunk or even adultery or murderer. All those behavioral things are just symptoms of the true disease. Our sin is a self-worshipping problem. It's a pride problem. It's a placing of our value higher than God's value. It's a placing of our virtues higher than God's virtues. Of even being able to ask that question of saying, why can't God accept me? I measure up to my own standards. Aren't I good enough for Him? The arrogance to even have that conversation, to put our morality higher than God in a deep-rooted sense that we think we can judge God's criteria for us. That is our sin. And the bloody seriousness of the cross of Christ The new covenant established by His blood is the antidote to that kind of thinking. That sin is no big deal. That sin is just something that, you know, God should just accept me because I'm a nice person. The blood of Christ is necessary. And this is hard for us to understand sometimes. The blood of Christ is necessary even for the sin of gentle, well-educated, middle-class, polite Canadians. We still need the blood of Christ. Because our sin is not about being nice. Our sin is about our arrogance to worship ourselves more highly than God or to think that we don't need our relationship with Him rectified. The blood of Christ is required even for your sweet old grandmother's sin. You still need the blood of Christ. And that's hard for us to imagine. And if we recoil from that truth, if we if we even start if you say, Paul, you say that, but I uh, you, you, even recoiling from that truth, if we push back on that, if we feel indignant that Christ would have to die such a bloody, horrible, obscene death for us, our indignation at that is the very proof that we need this lesson. That we think we're better we don't need that. So the cross teaches us something in the blood of Christ. It teaches us that sin is serious no matter what, and and our indignation that Christ should have to die such a humiliating death for us is proof that we don't, that, that we need Him. Proof that we don't understand the value of sin. But also, and this is so important too, that no matter how obscene and no matter how horrific our sins are, the horror and the obscenity of the cross surpasses it. That we don't have to worry about Whatever we have done, even those that aunt and uncle that locked up that boy in London even the you know whoever you know was working the doors at the oven in Auschwitz it doesn't matter what your sin is there was a more horrible sacrifice that was made for you and it measures up and surpasses but what does that mean what does this New covenant. What does the new covenant established in Christ's blood mean for our joy and our assurance and God's glory? And I've touched on a couple of them already. To understand why the blood is important. First of all, what I've talked about is to know that the most primitive and the most obscene sins are able to be matched by the primitive and obscene sacrifice of Christ in the shedding of his blood. Know that our sins are forgiven no matter how bad we feel they are whether it's abuse or abortion or just arrogance and self-satisfaction. And that this new covenant is a better covenant, that it doesn't need to be repeated over and over and over again, and we have the Holy Spirit to allow us to overcome and redeem our brokenness so that we don't have to sin anymore and we don't have to be those people. Secondly, the strength of the relationship that this cross and this sacrifice Gives us assurance of. That this new covenant that God has established with us is not in the blood of animals, it's not in the blood of lambs, it's not in the blood of goats or bulls, no matter how many of them. The strength of our relationship with God is established not in the death of an angel or the death of, you know, some substitute, as some people would have you believe that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, he was just an angel or he was just a good man. That that the strength of our relationship with God is forged upon the cost of what created that relationship. And the cost of that relationship was the blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ. And so we have an assurance in the strength of the relationship in what it was forged, that God paid too much for this relationship to let it slip away. And so if you think God is going to let you go once he's got you, he will not because of the blood of Christ on the cross it was not an inconsequential payment the price was too high to ever give it up and thirdly we see the depths of the love that jesus has for the glory of the father and our freedom so as you're sitting there and you think how horrible the cross is and how maybe you recoil from that and you're not sure whether you can just handle you know why jesus had to die and why did god have to send him to the cross and it's so bloody and it's so you know it just seems such an awful way to do it What we see in that is we see the depths of love that Jesus had for the glory of the Father and for our freedom. Because as horrific as we make the cross, and we should make it horrible, the more horrible we make it, we only reveal more clearly how deeply Jesus loved God and us. Because every step towards the cross was a step of love. And the more horrible the cross is, the deeper Jesus' love must have been. And so we have this assurance of the love of God and this assurance of the love of Jesus because he would not go through the horrors of the cross except that he loved us. And God will never hold lightly to what was bought with so great a price. And a covenant that's sealed with the blood of Jesus will never be broken. And so when we think about the cross and we think about the covenant, we think about this new relationship that God is establishing. Then we have this assurance exactly because of the blood of Christ that it is an absolutely faithful covenant, that is absolutely up to the task of forgiving our sins, that is absolutely forged in a perfect love. And if we put ourselves under this covenant, if we put ourselves under a covenant that's sealed in that blood, then we are the brother who is set free. We're the brother who gets life because his twin was willing to die for his foolishness and his sin. And so as we put our trust in the cross, as we put our trust in Jesus, we become the brother who is free. And communion today is our opportunity to cherish these truths in the cross of Christ. Communion is set up exactly to put the focus right where it should be, on the body and the blood of Christ, to remember these things. For the last sermon in this series, I saved the heavy stuff. (laughs) But I didn't want to miss this on a communion Sunday. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to understand why blood, why a broken Messiah on a cross. Because it is an absolute seal of an absolute promise of absolute love that is more obscene and more hideous and more terrible than any of our sins and it can atone for and redeem us from all sin. And at communion, we remember that. And so today when we go to communion, when you have that bread and when you have that cup, I just, I just want you to think just a little bit deeper. This whole sermon is just a setup <laughs> for you just to think a little bit deeper about what you eat and what you're drinking. This is what Jesus says. And after I'm done here, we'll have the helpers come forward for communion. This is what he says. In Luke 22, when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles were with him. He's in Jerusalem at the Passover, right before his crucifixion. And he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled. Fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's about to fulfill it. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And we do it to remember what Christ accomplished on the cross, specifically through his blood. Let's pray. Father God, as we come now to communion, I just ask that this would have a special meaning for us, that we can answer the question, why is it so bloody? Why did it have to be done this way? Because you established it, God, that your relationship with us is serious and our sin is serious, and that your covenant demands sacrifice to ratify it, to seal it. And so, Father, as we come into communion, I just pray that this would be close to our hearts that we would see that, yes, the cross is horrible. Yes, it will cause people to shrink back, and they will mock it, and they will say, why does it need to be so bloody and horrific? And we will know it needs to be because it is a picture of what needs to be atoned for our sin. It's a picture of how deeply you value the restoration of this relationship and how tightly you will hold on to that relationship once it's restored. The price you paid is too high to ever let it go. Father, thank you for the joy and assurance in that. In Christ's name, amen.